Why choose a Sleep Number Smart Bed? Because no two people sleep the same. Only the Sleep Number Smart Bed lets you each choose your individual firmness and comfort your Sleep Number setting. The Climate 360 Smart Bed is so smart, it actively cools or warms up to 13 degrees on either side for your ideal sleep temperature. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, plus free home delivery when you add an adjustable base. Ends Monday. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. It really starts with the parents and their own behaviors and their own thoughts about food, eating, and body image. Because even if the parents don't say anything about the kids, you know, food and eating and body image, and they're not putting their kids on diets and all that stuff, um, which of course is also not helpful. Um, even if they're not doing that, you know, kids, because of social learning theory and um, attachment theory and all this stuff, kids look at what parents are doing and they emulate it. Hello, and welcome to the Parentologist Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kim. The Parentologist Podcast is a show about everything parenting with a therapeutic twist. I have a doctor in psychology and am a licensed marriage and family therapist, a registered play therapist, university professor, writer, and mom of two. Each episode of the Parentologist Podcast focuses on a variety of topics related to parenting, family, children, and mental health. I'm glad you're here. On today's episode, we have Dr. Marian Miller, who specializes in eating disorder therapy. She has formerly been a full-time professor for 12 years and has merged her interest in research and cutting-edge treatment when she works with adults and teens to help them recover from eating disorders such as anorexia, bulimia, binge eating, picky eating, and body image issues. Dr. Miller, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm absolutely excited. I am too. I am too. Now, for yeah. listening, I want to share real quick, if it's okay with you, how yeah. we first met. <laughs> because totally. It's a pretty cool story. Um, it is. It so is. Uh, for anyone listening, I have known Dr. Miller for, um, I, don't, I don't know how many years, I'm not going to count right now, but since 2007, um, Dr. Miller was one of my very first professors when I was um, in my doctorate program. And um, yeah, I met her my fall semester of that year. And we ended up, uh, actually, I ended up in like interning for you as a TA, um, yep. research yep. assistant at some point. Yes. And then and you did amazing. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, and then she ended up being um, my doctoral chair when I was getting my doctorate. Um, she was the one standing by my side the whole time, you know, spearheading my, my, you know, doctoral exam and getting me through that process. So we've known each other for years. I admire her wholly and truly and um, just love the work that she's doing now in her private practice. Um, and I'm excited to get, you know, for you to get to know her today as well. So again, thank you for being here. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm so excited. And I love the work you are doing and have done. And I've always been a big fan of yours. And I'm happy to be here and support you and talk about the work that I love. It's Thank all, you. All loads of fun. Thank you. Well, I wouldn't be here um, if it weren't for you, honestly, just, Aww. you know, helping me through my my doctorate and, you know, giving me giving me good grades to, or in order to graduate. To get, oh, to honey, get honey, you earn them. <laughs> you earn them. Thank Believe you. me. Yeah, you're, you Thank did amazing. 
Thank yeah, you so she was, much. She was a star, everyone. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank yes. You. Well, I learned, I, I have honestly, truly have learned a lot from you and I've always looked up to you and admired you for, you know, what, what you do and, um, and your work and you as a therapist and obviously now you're in private practice and, um, you specialize, you know, in eating disorders. And I know it's a mm-hmm. topic we haven't talked about on the podcast yet. So no. I want to first, you know, start off by defining for anyone out there who's listening and kind of distinguishing the difference between anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating. I know there's definitely some, um, you know, from what I've learned, obviously, in, in school and some of the research I've done over the years on the topic, um, you know, there's some some de- some definite differences among them, but I don't know if everyone knows about it. So um, in a nutshell, if you can, um, what are some main, you know, distinguishing parts um, between anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating? That is a great question because there is a lot of confusion around that. So um, anorexia has to do primarily with restricting food and bulimia and binge eating have to do with kind of the overconsumption of food. So um, t- typically, like, and, and there are many nuances and subtypes and of these things, but with anorexia, it's when people are not eating and they consume, you know, lower amounts of, you know, total caloric intake and versus bulimia and binge eating, they have episodes, they have binge episodes where they have, you know, higher amounts of caloric intake. So, um, and that actually works differently from a neuroscience perspective, um, because people who have the brain, the types of brains that develop anorexia, um, they actually get a dopamine boost from restricting, almost like a high, I talk to my clients, they kind of like get a high from it. Um, and so when people are like, yeah, just start eating, they're like, why? Because this feels amazing. Don't not eat versus people who don't have eating disorders are like, when I don't eat, I just get cranky, you know? Um, and then with people with bulimia and binge eating, they, um, they get that dopamine boost from binging. And then with bulimia, it's, they get the dopamine boost from binging and then doing uh, what's called a compensatory behavior where they're trying to compensate from the binge. And so um, like the the common compensatory behavior for bulimia is purging, although it can also be, you know, using laxatives, over-exercising, a combination of those things. Um, And then uh, with binge eating, what it's, unique about that is that they have the behaviors, uh, the binge behaviors, and they feel very much out of control. And then they feel a huge amount of shame. Now, versus anorexia and bulimia, there's there's some shame that comes with bulimia, but really the the shame-heavy eating disorder is binge eating. And you may not be able to tell um, what kind of eating disorder a person has based on what they look like either. Um, because some people may think, oh, with anorexia, people with a very, very low body weight. It's like, yes, that can be a sign. Um, and, you know, I've had people with anorexia who haven't had a very low body weight. You know, maybe they had bulimia or maybe they struggled 
with, um, you know, other kind of types of subtypes of eating disorders. Um, so um, I think it's very important to convey that you can't always tell based on how people look. Like someone may have binge eating disorder and um, and not be in a fat body. They may be in like an average size body or maybe kind of on the thin size body. So, so it's more about the behaviors and not about the appearance. Hmm. Yeah, that is interesting. And I think, you know, um, it's common to think that when you see someone with anorexia, that they do have like a skeletal type body where mm-hmm. you see more bones than you do, you know, muscle or fat. Right. Um, and I think that's a misconception, um, you know, out there. So I'm glad you brought that up. Now, let me ask you this. If someone has an eating disorder, do they actually know that they have one um, or is there some denial that comes in or is it more so that you see people when you when they come into your practice that, you know, someone else, maybe a parent brings in their teen and saying, I know there's an issue here. We need to, to help them and support them. Um, or is, is it usually the client that comes in themselves and saying, I know I have a problem and I need help? It can be both. Um, uh, the thing with eating disorders in general is their egocentonic. So there's egocentonic mental disorders and egodystonic mental disorders. So um, egodystonic mental disorders is what, uh, you know, are when people are having a high, you know, stress levels because of the disorder. Like, for example, if they have like phobias of, uh, of getting in a car, you know, that's really affecting their life and it's very, very difficult for them. And so, or if they have um, obsessive compulsive disorder and they have to wash their hands 50 times before leaving the house, um, you know, that is very distressing for them. And so it's, it's ego dystonic. It's kind of, you know, it, it doesn't, um, it, it doesn't sit well with how they see themselves and how they want to live their lives. So they want relief. Anxiety disorders are ego dystonic because people don't want to be having panic attacks and things like that. Sure. Um, Ego syntonic um, means that the mental disorder is working for them (laughs) and um, eating disorders in general, um, especially anorexia and to some degree bulimia are dystonic. They're like, Hey, I found a way to, you know, control my weight, control what I eat. Um, you know, um, look good, or, or tons of people are giving me compliments and stuff like that. And um, so I'm going to keep doing this. And in those cases, sometimes it's uh, someone external, like a physician, it could be a parent of a teen, it could be like friends, you know, family members, whatever, saying, I'm really concerned. <laughs> um, and, you know, so I, I get uh, referrals from physicians a lot of times, like if the parents bring the teens and the teens, like, I don't want to be here. And, um, and that's common. Now with binge eating, um, it tends to be a little bit more ego dystonic. It's like people don't want to be binging. They, they, they feel that sense of out of control when they have the binges and, and they're just, they're over it. They're just, tired of it. They're tired of thinking about food all the time. 
and they get to that point. So, so right. it's a very, very unique versus like treating someone with depression or an anxiety because sometimes a lot of times I like, people come and see me, they're like, no, nah, I'm not quite sure I want to get rid of this. And I'm exactly. like, okay, cool. I, you know, we could work with that. Right. Right. Exactly. So then how does someone know uh, whether someone else brings them in, a supportive person brings them in, like a parent, let's say in, in, in this example you used earlier, um, or or they bring themselves in. But how does someone actually know that they might have an eating disorder? If, if something's working for them, how do they know it actually is a problem enough to seek some help? Yes, I really appreciate you asking that question. I would say the mental preoccupation uh, with food, eating, and body image uh, is a huge sign. Like when people are thinking about what they're eating or not eating, um, what like or how many calories they're eating or not eating, or what different kinds of food groups um, they may be excluding when they're and then they're thinking about their bodies. Um, they're they feel like my clients say a lot, it's like they feel like their brains are hijacked by the eating disorder. And eating disorders are brain disorders. That's all the top researchers and top eating disorder professionals agree that they're brain disorders, that they've done fMRIs um, on people with eating disorders and compared them to people without eating disorders. And they find that there are areas of the brain in people with eating disorders that don't work as efficiently and as effectively as compared to people without eating disorders. So it's a kind of, yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. And it's a kind of the chicken and the egg thing. It's like, we don't know, you know, like did the eating disorders prompt this or did they eat or did the, um, uh, you know, what, what did this exist prior to the eating disorders? But what people are saying now is that, that, um, that researchers have conducted twin studies where they compare twin, identical twins with the same DNA, and they find up to 80, it's like 81 or 82 percent of those twins, if there's an eating disorder in one, there'll be an eating disorder in another. So there's a huge biological component. So the way that I see it is, you know, people are born with a biological predisposition and then some environmental factors kind of can flip the switch and, um, you know, and then they develop a full-fledged eating disorder. And it can be, sometimes it's for, for kids, it can be bullying. It can be sometimes the stress of switching schools, um, a breakup from a, you know, romantic partner. Um, sometimes it's when kids go to college and it's like, it's just the stress of everything prompts that. Um, uh, you know, tr any sort of trauma, you know, a lot of that comes to that. And then also environmental factors, familial factors can contribute as well. Given, uh, you know, it's biologically based, there tends to be other people in the family and extended family who have eating disorders as well. So, so it's a very, um, it's a very unique uh, and that's one thing I love so much about it. It's incredibly comp complex. It's very unique and nuanced. And what I want people to remember is that it's not their fault. Is that if, you know, a lot of times they feel like, oh, I just need to get over this or I have, I need to just have enough willpower. And all of society is telling them this and maybe even 
friends and family members and loved ones are telling them this, or then doctors are telling them this. It has nothing to do with willpower. It's not their fault. It's just their brains aren't working as efficiently as effectively. And the great thing is, is the right treatments can actually heal their brains because of neuroplasticity. And I see it all the time. And it's like, I'm totally getting goosebumps right now because I, I, I it is the most glorious thing to see people heal um, from eating disorders and recover. Yeah, it, that, that's amazing. It's amazing. I mean, obviously, as a therapist myself, it's amazing when you actually can see, oh yeah, really see the change, you know, in in your clients. It, it is just an amazing feeling that gives you goosebumps because, um, you know, it's rewarding for us to to see that, to be part of that process with them, to be part of that journey with them. Um, but it's just amazing to see them transform. Um, it's just it, there's nothing like it. So I completely no. know where you're coming from with that, and oh, you know what that totally. feels like. So. Um, and you actually answered my next question was, you know, about who is susceptible to having an eating disorder. So I'm glad you brought up, you know, being predisposed to it and then having some t- some type of trigger maybe in life, um, which you mentioned, you know, some some ones that, that could happen too. So yeah, and the prevalence uh, is the same across cultures, across races. You know, this isn't just like, you know, a white girl disease, um, right. you know, uh, that's the stereotype, like people... Uh, you know, BIPOC people get eating disorders as frequently as as white people, people, you know, from all different cultures and, you know, all over the world uh, develop different forms of it. It's just um, biology. So Right, right, exactly. Well, let's talk about parents. I know you see a lot of teens. And so let's talk yeah. about parents a little bit and how they play a role in shaping their child's thoughts about their body image. What advice do you have for parents with young children um, to help shape a culture of accepting and loving their bodies and their body image um, as their children are growing up? I love, love, love that question. And I, I just, first of all, you know, parenting is the hardest job on the planet. Yes. So I just want to acknowledge <laughs> that. And uh, parents are often so hard on themselves. And so, you know, it's like, it's, it's, so I just want to, you know, really encourage parents that, um, you know, if, if there's been some bumps in the road in this area, you know, things can change. And actually, the young, younger the kids are, when um, the eating disorders are treated, the better the prognosis. So, you know, the younger the kids are when you start making these changes as parents, the better. Um, and so it really starts with the parents and their own behaviors and their own thoughts about food, eating, and body image. Because even if the parents don't say anything about the kids, you know, food and eating and body image, and they're not putting their kids on diets and all that stuff, um, which of course is also not helpful. Um, even if they're not doing that, you know, kids, because of social learning theory and um, attachment theory and all this stuff, kids look at what parents are doing and they emulate it. So if they're seeing a parent say, oh my gosh, I look so horrible in this and oh my pants are too tight and oh I've eaten I ate such a big lunch I'm going to skip dinner or you know I'm going to try this new diet and regardless of what the kid looks like the kid's going to think oh maybe I should do that too 
And even if when parents are talking about that with about other people, if they're looking at other people, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that person looks so bad. Like, you know, oh, did you see cousin Susie? She's she's put on a bit of weight, you know. Then kids right. may think think, oh, so do people think of that way about me? Um, and so it's really watching what you say and how you think. And if if you find yourself as parents um, being preoccupied with food, eating, and body image, then that might be something to look into and maybe even talking to someone about that. I mean, a lot of times I have people who, you know, when they, before they had kids, they're like, hey, this eating disorder thing is working for me. And then when, as soon as they have the kids, they're like, okay, I do not want to pass this down, you know, to my children. Right. And so that's really the motivating factor that gets them into therapy. And so just really watching what you say. And then, of course, um, watching what type of pediatrician you have. Um, I, I think that, unfortunately, uh, a lot of medical professionals have bought into um, the fear of obesity, the fear of um, childhood obesity. And so they look at, you know, the kids and they're like, well, I don't know, you know, maybe they need to eat fewer carbs. Or I've even had kids who struggle with severe picky eating or um, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder where the pediatrician was like, oh, they just need to eat more rice, which is like such an oversimplified um you know, horrible thing right. to tell a kid who yes. like, is really having a hard time eating, you know, and so um, just really screen your pediatricians well and, and make sure that they're not being disparaging about the kid's body weight and not like overly obsessing about BMI because BMI, a lot of researchers have pro proven that it is not an accurate depiction of of health and it's very culturally racially biased <laughs> as well and so you just want to make sure you have a really understanding um uh, pediatrician who really gets um you know the, these kinds of things uh sure. just so they don't you know unwillingly say things that could be harmful Absolutely. Now, I know I didn't give you this question ahead of time, but I, you brought something up earlier that, that got me thinking when it comes to body image or even, you know, um, a potential trigger, you know, to for the mm -hmm. onset of an eating disorder um, control when it comes to control. Mm -hmm. And you know, you, you've you read articles or you hear things, um, you know, saying uh, talking about perfectionism and parents um you know, really honing in on their child being perfect, maybe perfect at a sport, perfect um, academically, you know, striving for valedictorian, whatever it is. Um, yeah. You mentioned earlier about, you know, e eating disorders um, have a sense to, of control to it, whether you're restricting it and you're controlling the restriction or, you know, vice versa. So how much does control play a part in having an eating disorder? Um, you know, is there that striving for, I almost say perfection, but you know, control over your life. Maybe your life is chaotic. Maybe there's some trauma going on. Maybe there's some things going on and a teen is, you know, hormonally going through things, right? Um, you know, the, the biological changes and things like that in those years. Um, how much does control play in a potential eating disorder? That's, a, and, and I'm glad you brought up that question because um, in the 80s and 90s, 
control was was considered like that is all eating disorders are about. It's just about control. And as you know, in the 2000s, especially, I would say in the last like you know seven to ten years, so much of the neuroscience research has come up um, that uh, you know we're finding that it's yes, there's elements of wanting to control. And it's like so much more complicated and nuanced than that. I would, I would say it's maybe less, you know, less about control and more about avoidance. Um, and it's also could be about coping. So for example, if I have someone who grew up in a very abusive family situation, you know, they're just trying to survive, you know, they're just trying to get through their childhood. And so, you know, they're going to grasp at anything that's going to help them survive. And for people who are predisposed to develop an eating disorder, you know, you know, either restricting or, um, you know, bending and purging or binging by itself, that is going to help them feel better. It's going to give them that dopamine boost and that relief um, that will help them not only feel better, but also kind of forget about the awfulness of their family situation. And then it's, so it's, a, it's about avoidance and, um, and it's also a coping skills I mentioned, and it's in a way kind of the self-soothing piece, especially for binge, binge eating and bulimia, um, because um, eating is a very tactile um, process. And so if you think about it, it's like you pick up the food and you put it in your mouth, you pick up the food and put it in your mouth, and then you're chewing and swallowing. Although a lot of my clients who, who are binging or binging and purging, they say, I don't, I'm not even tasting the food. And so when they do that, um, it's, there's just something like soothing in the repetitive motion of, of the hand to mouth, you know, putting the food in their mouth, putting in food or taking the spoon in you know whatever they're eating and putting it in their mouth, and so so you know instead of seeing the eating disorder as like the evil you know thing and it's it's um, you know it's a uh, an an extension of a perfectionistic characteristic, um, it's it's more like um, you know they're just trying to cope a really tough situation, and yes you know there are there's research, you know, UCSD is doing research and other like, you know, big name uh, universities are conducting research on temperaments uh, of people who develop eating disorders. And perfectionism is one of the characteristics, you know, the temperament. And um, I see, you know, high achieving perfectionism, not only in my clients, but in the whole family. So it's kind of, and, and if you trace back through the generations, you have these very high achieving driven perfectionistic traits. And so, which, you know, could be contributing to the biological predisposition of the people who develop eating disorders. That said, I have clients with eating disorders who aren't perfectionists, who aren't, you know, driven and high achieving either. So, um, yeah. Did that answer your question? Yeah. No, I, the, it's it's all very fascinating to me. And I, I don't know if you yes. have, I think I've told you this before, but for anyone listening who doesn't know this already, um, in my undergrad, um, 
And even a little bit in my master's, I, I did a lot of papers on eating disorders and I did a lot of research on eating disorders. I'd forgotten that. Yeah, it's just it's it's um it's especially body image and how the media plays a, a role in, in body image mm-hmm. which we're going to get to next. Um, but it's all just been been very you know interesting to me and also now as a parent, no, you know making sure that I don't pass on you know possibly some. I know there's that biological piece, but you know the the, the mm-hmm. social factors of passing certain. Oh, things totally. On, you know when it comes to anxiety, mm-hmm. and I went I even went through my own phase. Um, after a, a somewhat traumatic experience years and years ago, um, I, I did some restrictive eating and mm-hmm. personally, when I look back of, of why, and again, I don't know if I was, could have been diagnosed officially with an eating disorder, but, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. I just had a hatred of my body. Like I just, yeah. I was so angry yeah. at my body and, and hated it. I yeah. didn't care what it looked like. I didn't care what I was eating or if I didn't mm-hmm. eat, I just went through kind of a self-hatred and so on, but I used yeah. food for yeah. that. Um, for mm-hmm. a short time. And then, you know, I, yeah. you know, luckily was able to, you know, move on and, you know, um, heal so my mind the way I thought about my body, but, you know, yeah. there's, there's that social piece too. Um, and Absolutely. So next question is, you know, what role do you think social media, and this was before social media even existed, you know, my, yeah. oh my um, gosh, I had, know. You know, Glamour <laughs> and Cosmo magazines, oh, oh, yes. these models, you know, Kate Moss always comes up yes. as this, you know, perfectionist, our oh, perfect yeah. model back in the day. Oh my gosh. Right. In the 90s. I know yeah, I'm dating, right. dating myself right now, but it's true. <laughs> That's what we have. Um, oh yeah. Uh, yep. Now you know adults too, but teens, mm-hmm. you know, have social media. They have Instagram. Oh, yeah. They have TikTok. They they have comparing and contrasting in their face all day, every day. So, mm-hmm. how much do you think social media plays a role in disordered eating and body image? Uh, a a lot, um, and you know, with anything, it, there's like. <laughs> The good of social media and the evil of social media. Right. So, you know, sure. Yeah. So like increasingly over the years that I've been working with eating disorders, I, I've had to assess social media usage more and more. And um, and that is like one of the main things I talk about on session one with people is how much social media uh, use they're in and and what kind of people do they look at it do they look at a a a lot of like health and fitness the what did I eat today you know pictures and social media are they into you know quote clean eating are they into you know those kinds of you know accounts and channels or tiktoks or whatever um are they you know looking at at the full body shot you know um uh, people with social media, um, in, in, you know, like bikinis or something like that. And so, um, so what I do is I slowly transition them from looking at a lot of that, a lot of, you know, what, um, eating disorder professionals call like diet culture, um, diet culture, which promotes you know, getting as small a body as possible and having, uh, you know, looking a particular way that's socially acceptable and eating, eating uh, very little or eating in a very restricted way. Um, And that's kind of promoted as health. Um, 
you know, and they're like, oh, I'm just trying to get healthy. And it's like, okay, yeah. And how many food groups have you cut out of, of what you're eating, you know, kind of thing. And um, so it's really moving that from that to more of the the positive or the good parts of social media. And there's a ton of, of like weight inclusive, um, I hate the term plus size, but like plus size models that do amazing, like about body love, body, body acceptance, um, and uh, that show all different types of bodies. I mean, and again, a lot of these, there's, there's a huge race component because a lot of these body, um, uh, these, you know, less helpful uh, channels on uh, or accounts on Instagram and TikTok videos or whatever, it's very white. It's like, and so, okay, so you have all these BIPOC kids who are like, oh, that's the ideal. That's not helpful. You know, know, it's like, okay, so I have to be white to look good and have people love me. Like, Mm. that sucks. You know, and it's completely racist and impressive so on and so forth. So moving away, it's like, okay, who looks like, you know, who looks like you? Who can be heroes, you know, for you that looks like you? Who are living lives, you know, like maybe you're interested in painting. Like, are there some painters you can follow that you can just get really into? You know, like, can you look past things that um, have nothing to do with, with body image? And then if you wanted to do look at things with body image, look at the more weight inclusive, the body positive, you know, um, uh, accounts. And that has been very helpful for my clients where they're like, hey, I found some people out there who, you know, look, you know, more like me than, you know, what I'm going for, or, or, you know, maybe that even have larger bodies than they do. And then they're like, wow, they're out living their life doing all this awesome fun stuff. And, and like, so maybe I can too. Maybe I don't have to put my, you know, life on pause or, you know, on pause um, until I, until, you know, I, I get down to a certain size or look a certain way or whatever. But, you know, if, if they need to cut it out completely or really cut it down significantly, um, we have that conversation and some of my clients do cut it out. Now, teens, that's pretty much impossible yes. <laughs> to be honest because yes. that's their language like that was you know when I was growing up it was the landline telephone dating myself and then um you know then eventually it grew into the cell phone as I became a young, young adult but now you know so if you take away social media completely it's it's like not helpful but you, what you want to do as a parent is teach kids how to think critically about what they're saying seeing like pulling up certain accounts being like okay what message do you think that's sending you know or watching videos like where you know a movie where maybe they're making fun of you know a a character in a fat body it's like okay let's push pause here what message do you think that's sending about people with fat bodies well it's saying they're lazy and stupid and smart and I'm like well okay is that an accurate message well no because it has nothing to do with their brain (laughs) and and, you know there could be amazing people and so the earlier you can get kids to think critically about those things then they can consume social media critically as well 
That's true. I think it does start with conversations and having conversations, especially, mm-hmm. you know, because there's a lot to see out there on social media. Um, you know, things that so my much. parents didn't have to worry about when I was growing up. Thank goodness. Oh, I know, right? Enough to worry about. But now, as a parent of, you know, two young ones that are, you know, don't have social media yet, um, but I'm sure at some point the way our world's going, you know, with technology, I'm sure they will. Um, and to have even those conversations when they're little before yes. they really get exposed oh, yeah. about what's out there, I think is is helpful. Now, I know you mentioned diet culture, and I wanted to yeah. talk about fat phobia for a second, because that term mm-hmm. is, you know, used a lot these days. And mm-hmm. I see it a lot on social media. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, talking, there's, you know, there's, there's, some people out there that, um, you know, have, you know, fitness trainers and, you know, people who have exercise accounts on social media um, and even people who exercise for their mental health to maybe decrease anxiety, decrease depression, yeah. things like that. Or even someone like me who has, a, you know, who's a two-time breast cancer survivor who researches right. shows by exercise, it'll help, Absolutely. you know, prevent reoccurrence. So there's, there's reasons to exercise, you know, whether it's for health reasons, for your heart, for your, you know, yeah. or whatever it is. But then there's others out there that argue that exercising or these exercising type accounts, which again, there's there's a plethora of a spectrum yeah, of one, right. but you know that that these exercise accounts, um, or at least some of them, are feeding into a fat phobic culture. What are mm-hmm. your thoughts on that? And you know, just as we're talking about diet culture and what's out there and what kids are seeing, um, how does that come into play? Okay, well, I'm going to answer that in two parts. Um, so fat phobia is is just the, the fear of being in a fat body, like seeing uh, people in a fat body as inherently, like, you know, bad or lazy or unhealthy or, um, you know, having diabetes or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, or stupid and that starts so young. I mean, even in some children's books, you know, there are, are those kinds of messages. So again, it's sure. all about teaching kids how to think critically. Yeah. And so, um, so, so, so fat phobia is, it, it, um, it, it is just the fear that like being in a fat body really means that you can't um, live a full life. And I am a person who is in a fat body and I have a very full life. And, uh, and I know a lot of people in fat bodies who have, who have very full lives. And, um, you know, fat, fat phobia is, uh, it's, it's really discrimination. It's discrimination against, um, people who are in fat bodies. And it can be as subtle as, you know, ha- always when you go into a restaurant, having chairs that have arms on them that people with fat bodies may not fit in, or if they do, they feel very uncomfortable in. Um, to um, um, of just oh, clothes shopping—that's that's a big because I love clothes, I love fashion, all of that. Like there's a mall out here in San Diego where for a long time there wasn't, and it was a big mall, <laughs> it's a big mall, yeah. uh, there wasn't any plus size fashion being sold mm-hmm. in the entire mall. So oh, wow. as much, I'm like, I have money, I want to spend it, right. you know, give me clothes. 
Interesting. And so, I didn't know that. Yes. And then finally, there was one store that started including it. And I'm like, okay, you're my favorite store in the whole world. Right. But <laughs> they're going to so get all that, the money. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, right? Yeah. And, you know, it's, and so it's a, it's a fat phobic culture. And then that is so pervasive. It, in the uh, medical community, researchers have well-documented weight discrimination among medical professionals, hugely. Um, uh, and then, and so they send the messages to parents and to kids and uh, to people about that. And so it's 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 just a very toxic part of this um, of uh, you know diet culture and it's it's discrimination because people can be in fat bodies for so many different reasons, you know, genetics being one, um, sometimes they're on a medication that could have done that. Sometimes they have like health conditions that have like nothing to do with diabetes or anything, you know, that's, um, that, you know, like thyroid issues or other kinds of things. And so people, as I think, especially in the United States, automatically think, well, it's just about willpower. They don't have enough willpower. And that's not it. It's, it's like, you know, a lot of times biologically people just have fat bodies and, and then there are people who have developed, um, you know, a, chronic dieting can also, researchers have found that chronic yo-yo dieting can lead to a higher weight because your metabolism and, you know, the way your body um, processes um, c- calories and, and it, there's, all complicated science behind it that my dietitian friends are better at answering, but um, it actually causes people to be at a higher weight, you know, compared to like when they first start dieting. That's one reason why diets are so not helpful for people. And so, um, so that's, uh, you know, so fat phobia and, and also diet culture stems from really marketing. It's about making money. So you have these big like diet companies and even influencers on social money or social media, they make money when you return back to them. These big diet companies, they make the most money on repeat customers. So really they don't want it you to succeed because they want you to come back and use it again. So it's 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 all it's all it's a over four hundred billion dollar industry. Wow. And fat phobia is fostered by that because if people are afraid of being fat or if they feel like they don't feel good in their body, then they'll go pay money to these influencers, these professionals, or they'll follow the influencers, go to the professionals, all those things, and uh, pay money to be in these programs. And so um, with the whole exercise thing, that's the second part of my answer, I actually just became familiar with this in the last week, you know, I was looking on social media and I was like, oh, there's this whole conversation around, you know, um, the first I saw of it was like having people in fat bodies exercise. And the conversation was like, um, like big people, like I love Lizzo. She just like is amazing. And, and when people say, well, it's easier to quote tolerate people in fat bodies if you see them working out and exercising. And and I I would say yes, that is I think that's the case. That people are like, well, it's okay, you know, we can we can love them and accept them now because at least they're working on it. And it was like, well, 
you know, they, they may not be doing this to lose weight. <laughs> they may just kind of be doing it because they like it, you know, maybe they like playing tennis, you know, or swimming or, or whatever. So I, I think it's, uh, again, I think my understanding of it is limited because I was just exposed to it in the last week. But the, the, my take of it is, is that like, we don't want to have fat people exercising to help us feel better about them being fat. Right. And so um, it's, it's more about, um, so it's tricky uh, because, you know, I have clients that are like are really afraid of getting into exercise because they're afraid of being, you know, being at the gym or being at, you know, out in a bathing suit and feeling humiliated while they're swimming and it, when they see people on social media in fat bodies doing that, it gives them courage mm-hmm. to do that. It's like, oh, I don't have to like stop my life. I can go to the beach and be in a bikini and, you know, forget what other people are thinking. I'm just going to enjoy my life and feel the sun on my face and, you know, move into this place of more body acceptance. And you know, there's there's this one person I call on social media. I can't put, I can't remember her name for the life of me. She just tries on bathing suits and, and she just, and like, and it's great. And she's like, okay, this, you know, if you have this kind of pooch here going on, don't worry about it. It's okay. You know, don't you love this color? It's just like so positive. And, and she works with like bathing suit companies and, and stuff like that. And, um, and it, it think, you know, as a fat person, I'm like, cool, I want to get some of those suits, <laughs> you yeah. know, because I like, and I'm thinking all the cool things I could do this summer with those cute suits. And, exactly. and, and so like, so again, I, I think it's important not, not to, um, to think about it with, from a critical perspective is like, yes, we have to make sure that we have to check ourselves. And it's like, okay, am I if am I having fat phobia while I look at these videos? And am I feeling a little bit better when I hear Lizzo's a vegan and, you know, exercises? Does that make me feel better about her? You know, because she's a fat body instead of like, she's amazing because she, first of all, she's a human being and she has value and she's an amazing singer and artist and songwriter. And I like, oh, I think she's a songwriter, but, you know, and I, you know, fashion and makeup and hair and like I love her and and so um so it's it's so you know as parents it's not only challenging your children to think that way but it's also challenging the way that you think about these things right and and regardless of what the person is doing you know is just seeing value in them as a person and regardless of what their appearance is Exactly. Exactly. Um, I, oh gosh, I have so many more questions to ask you. I know, I know. we could I, talk about this for like three hours. <laughs> I know we'll have to to it at some point because you have so much yeah. knowledge and so much wisdom, um, you know, and I just Thank know you. you're, you're, you're helping so many people out there that are listening to this right now that, you know, Aww. are going through something similar. So I have two more questions to ask, um, you know, before we end, what advice do you have for someone that has a negative body image? You know, what's, what's the first step? What's something they can do? Uh, maybe a coping skill, if you will, um, that they, that they can um, start doing maybe to, to help them if they, if they are having a negative body image. So step one would be look at the functionality of your body, um, what it does for you. 
you know, and sometimes it's as simple as, you know, when you're walking around at a grocery store or at, you know, tar- Target or whatever, and, um, and just saying, wow, I'm able to walk around Target, you know, and then maybe thinking about people, you know, who aren't able to walk around Target and, um, and like, well, I can do this. My legs are working and, and what can I do today? Oh, like my arms can pick up my kids and give them a hug. And, you know, what can they, what's the functionality about, about my body? So that's just really sometimes even like writing down a list of like what my body can do, kind of like a gratitude list in a way. I think that's um, helpful. And then, um, you know, I, I think talking to a professional about it, someone in the area of eating disorders, um, you know, even if it's, it, it's really not the eating issues that you're struggling with, it's just straight out body image, just having a few sessions with them can make a huge difference. Um, and being able to look at, at coping skills um, to help them. And then I, I would say the third thing is when you have those negative body image thoughts come up, um, distract yourself. Uh, just do, do something else, like do something that makes you feel good, like look at videos of puppies or kittens or something like that. You know, play with your own pet or, you know, hug your kid and get on the floor and you know, play Legos with them, something that distracts you from thinking about those things. It's just like, you know, I'd say it's like if your 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 brain is on, uh, you know, a, a train or on a train track, it's just like switching tracks. Yes. Yes. I, I like that. I, I like giving people, um, you know, some tangible um, practical yes. coping skills yes. that they can do. What, like so you helpful. Now to give some some hope out there for someone who might be struggling or might have their own teenager or, or child struggling with an eating disorder, what does eating uh, disordered eating uh, recovery look like? You know what when you've seen your clients change, you know what what does that look like? What can someone be hopeful about if they're struggling with something right now like disordered eating? Um, what can they look forward to once they get professional help from someone like yourself? Um, and what what does it look like on the other side? Well, recovery is very subtle and nuanced. Um, you know, unlike these diet companies who say you're going to change in 30 days and blah, blah, blah. You know, it can take a while, many months, sometimes many years. And it's, I mean, you're making progress, um, but, and sometimes you might have slips, but it, it's just going to take a while. So being patient and trusting the process is important. Right. Also, I think that um, having, uh, you know, talking with, you know, your therapist, eating disorder, dietitian, whatever, about what recovery will look like to you. And with the vast majority of my clients, they say, I won't be thinking about food, eating and body image all the time. I'll actually have space in my brain to think about other things. And and that's what I see is I see my clients, the, the mental obsessions and the, the heaviness, the burden, the mental burden that they have, the preoccupation is goes from like 90% to like at least 10, if not sometimes 5%. Yeah. 
where they're thinking about these things. Oh yeah. And I tell my clients that and they're like, they're like, I don't believe you. And then when we get to their end of the treatment, they say, I remember when you told me that you said it wasn't true, but now I see it was. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. It's, it's so, it's like one of the most rewarding things of in the world. I love it so much. <laughs> oh, I, I, I know. And actually, you're you're going to be offering a new virtual interactive class on Zoom. It's called Binge Eating 101, Redefining Your Relationship with Food and Your Body. Um, tell mm-hmm. us when that is so people can possibly sign up. I'd love for them to sign up and learn more. Um, but where can they sign up and tell us a little bit more about the class? Yes. Well, they can go to my website. It's um, drmariannemiller.com. And uh, my first name is spelled M-A-R-I-A-N-N-E. So drmariannemiller.com. And click on the Binge Eating 101 um, page. And you can read about it there. And uh, you can register there. It begins April 19th. And it's a weekly 90-minute, excuse me, class that so it goes for four weeks and we're just doing a deep dive into the complexities of binge eating and really getting people to take the first step of changing the narrative you know changing their thoughts and and their thinking around um food and about their body and so it's not therapy it's not a therapy group it's it's educational and it's interactive you know we're not going to be looking at a bunch of powerpoint slides we're going to have some really great deep discussion and I, I am going to, sh- to share, you know, expand on a lot of things I've been talking about in this website or uh, this uh, podcast. And uh, third week, we're going to have an eating disorder dietitian that I work with a lot. She's Amy Ornelas. She specializes in binge eating uh, as well. And so we're just going to have a great time. I'm totally excited about it. And the Registration deadline is April 5th and the spots are shrinking, number of spots is shrinking fast. So I recommend that they check it out uh, as soon as they can. I love that. I love that. And we'll make sure that the website is up on, um, Perfect. you know, Apple and Spotify, you know, the who, people that are going to be downloading this episode so they can have that direct access to it um, and as a reminder as well. So anyway, Dr. Miller, thank you again so, so much. I know we went a little bit over, um, but I'm so truly grateful because I think, like I said, you you are such a great teacher. You're, you're, you have so much experience, so much wisdom, and just thank you so much for sharing you know, all of, of what you've talked about today. And I know there's, you know, people out there listening right now that you are helping through your words and your work. And I'm just truly appreciative for that. Well, it's my pleasure and my honor. And it, it really is my calling to do this work. And I'm just so grateful. And I just want to tell everyone out there that's struggling that there is hope. Yeah, that recovery is possible. Thank you for joining us today. I can't wait to have you back for more. Make sure to subscribe to the Parentologist podcast so you don't miss an episode and make sure to tell your friends. This podcast is not intended to be a replacement for therapy. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please call 911.